All right, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18. On Wednesday, we covered chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. We had a little bit left of 17. We kind of went back over it uh, the first part, the first hour. We covered that. We started Jeremiah 18. We did not get very far because we had to go to Romans chapter 9 and deal with one of the most controversial sections maybe in the entire Bible, one that really upsets a lot of people, but we had no choice. We had to cover it. Uh, I'm going to read the paragraph that sparked all of this. Uh, This is in the uh, Summer 2023 Explore the Bible Study Guide, uh, which is on, uh, session five is on Jeremiah chapter 18. Uh, They... They call this session shapes. We don't really, we're trying to figure out exactly why. Then they have this little like, you know, heading, this little like saying, because, you know, this is going to make everyone feel better. It says, God is in control, shaping his people for his purposes. God is in control, shaping his people for his purposes. Immediately, when you read that, you should have a million problems. Because if you've read the 17 chapters of Jeremiah that comes before chapter 18, obviously, you should already be struggling greatly. If you've been reading these chapters, you shouldn't be finding comfort and hope. And, oh, this is such a beautiful book. And posting little things on social media. Or, I guess, you know, telling everyone in the small group how wonderful it is. You should be greatly, greatly psychologically scarred and damaged. Because the book is very disturbing. Because God is basically telling Judah, look... I'm going to, t- you're, you're going to be slaughtered. You're going to be killed. I'm going to take your bodies, throw them across the land like dung and judgment and judgment is coming. And, and the only solution seems to be offered up in the book of Jeremiah in these 17 chapters is judgment is coming. Now that seems inevitable. So on one hand, there's literally nothing you can do to fix it. On the other hand, well, I mean, if you would simply obey me, you could avoid it. The only problem is that we know that It's not, it can't happen. Had Israel obeyed God in the past? No. Were they obeying him in the present? And were they going to obey him in the future? And if your theology says that we cannot obey and that we can't even repent unless God grants us repentance, then you should even start feeling even more uncomfortable because then you're like, well, wait a minute, God. If you're the one who grants repentance, just grant them repentance and then they can be spared, but God won't grant them repentance. If they can obey, well, then God somehow give them something that will take care of the fact that they can't obey. But no, it's just, it's the entire system that they're under demands basically perfection. They can't be perfect. Therefore, it's going to be a story over and over and over. We read this from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. It's a story of God demanding what the people cannot do and judging and judging and judging and judging and judging and judging. Now, there is a hope of something future, but in the meantime, it's just destruction, 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 destruction. And you just sit there going, well, if people can do it, well, then you're telling me their solution is obedience, but then that becomes a workspace system. That's a problem. There's never really anything clearly laid out for them that the solution is, hey, we can't, we believe you can, and we're finished. That doesn't ever seem to be clearly articulated in the Old Testament. We get to the New Testament, we're told that their problem was a lack of faith, but we don't know, I mean, I mean, this gets into a whole dispensational issue and all kinds of issues. The whole problem is they're just, you just start going, I don't understand this system. God knows they can't do it. He keeps demanding they do it. And if God's the one who grants repentance, just grant them repentance. And then you spare all of these people being slaughtered. And he does not do that. So that led us, in fact, I'm going to read the paragraph they have here. So their little statement that God is in control, shaping his people for his purposes. Well, if God is shaping his people for his purposes, why don't he just shape them for the purpose of, I don't know, not dying? That'd That'd be a good thing. So, I mean, everyone should be bothered. Then we read this paragraph, which, okay. Most of us have been in situations where we have witnessed poor leadership and thought things would be better if we were in control. We would have to admit, however, that in the situations where we were in control, things didn't always turn out the way we hoped. The fact is, we are never in complete control of everything in our lives. The only one who is in complete control of everything is 
God and he is working out all things according to his good pleasure, which includes shaping his people for his purpose. And I said that anyone who reads this, and I know this is supposed to be meant, you know, to do in a little small group in a semicircle where everybody's holding hands and singing Kumbaya, but anyone who reads this should immediately drop it and go, ah, and say, I don't want anything to do with it because that's a horrible, frightening paragraph. That's disturbing beyond all control, especially when you read it in the context of the book of Jeremiah. Because if God is in control of everything, why are they going to be slaughtered? And if he's shaping them, how about you shape them so they don't have to be destroyed? I mean, that's a question. I know we're not supposed to ask these kinds of questions in church. I know we're not supposed to. But I'm telling you, there's people in the world who read it who will ask these questions. And the reason they don't come to church is because the church won't even bother to address it because we're just like, oh, wasn't that a beautiful paragraph that the small group leader read? Oh, that was so beautiful. I'm going I'm to take that paragraph and post it on social media, Right? Any reasonable person going, that's the most twisted, psychotic thing I've ever read in my life. You're studying the book of Jeremiah. But the church, we're just, we're not supposed to do that. We're just supposed to go, "Mm, it's so beautiful. There's nothing beautiful about that. It's frightening. So we, we, we were like, how do we understand this? Which led us to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. Now, I don't have time to re preach it. But Romans chapter 9 is where we were. And the one thing we know that there's a contextual agreement is for a couple of reasons. Romans chapter 9 is clearly about Israel. And guess what? Jeremiah is talking to Israel. So we know there's a connection. If you look at Jeremiah 18, everybody just look at it really quick. You should see that there's something going on there dealing with potter, pot, clay. You see that? All right. If just briefly, if you'll look in Romans chapter 9, you'll see that the same kind of image is being discussed or the same kind of, uh, some of the same ideas are found right here in Romans chapter 9 because you'll look at verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay. So we definitely know there's a textual correlation between the two that you can at least say that this is r- related. But Romans 9 does not give you a good answer. Do you know what the answer is in Romans 9? God creates some people for honor. He creates some people for dishonor. You're like, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Let me help you out. He creates some to be saved. He creates others to be destroyed. And people will immediately push back on that. And I know you want to push back on that. But it, 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 there's no, I don't know how, I don't know what you do. You've, got, you've only got two op- options, right? That God just, God created the law. He's like, here you go. Do this and you're good to go. Well, then that's a very works-based system, right? So we say that we can't do the law, therefore we need Christ. But then, are, are you telling me everyone is able and free to just accept Christ? If everyone is free and able to accept Christ, well, then, then you have to say, well, then they don't have a sinful nature, right? And so then you get back to Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. And even that, that's, even if you say everyone can, this text seems to clearly imply that's not the case. Because throughout the Romans 9, he says it's about electing. It's not about man's will. It's not about man's works. It's about God making a choice. And God made a choice. And he gives the example. He chose Jacob and hated Esau. And it had nothing to do with their works. The whole thing is so distressing. And when we look at Romans 9, if you're in a Reformed church, everybody's like, oh, well, you know, nobody deserves it. So everything's good and we all feel great. But when you go back and put it back in the context of Jeremiah, you're talking about real families. Real people, real human beings who are being killed. And that should make you go, well, this is not so pretty anymore. You can preach this and make it sound so 
holy and righteous as you send in a big church with a, a nice pulpit and a lot of people and everybody's like, amen, we learned about the sovereignty of God today. And nobody's got, nobody wants to stop and go, I am so confused. And I was, I, was, I was making a joke. Everybody wants to talk about banning books in the library. You may want to start with the book of Romans. Because that's some messed up stuff. Right? I mean, just think of someone reading that. Well, am I a vessel of honor or am I a vessel of... Now, that's just, that's just an introduction. Does that, does that get you excited? Yeah, well, here we go. Jeremiah 18. I'm going to try to keep myself following the study guide only because I'm trying to finish the chapter. But the last hour, we read one paragraph and then ended up in Romans 9. So we never know when I read anything where we're going to end up. I know I can't, I, if I, I, that's why I could never do a little small groups because you're supposed to just follow the little book and just go along and say the words they say and everybody's like, oh, that was so comforting and so, pe-. whatever, okay? You know, I don't do that, right? So, but that's probably why we have no one here, okay? Maybe I should do it the other way, right? Okay, I could get, I could, I could get some, I could get some cookies and some coffee and, you know, we could have Emma learn to play the guitar instead of the violin. And, yeah, and then, you know, we could all be cool and, you know, and never mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of mocking of it. But okay, you ready? Jeremiah. Oh, boy. I'm just... Jeremiah chapter 18. All right. We're gonna, I'm going to try to follow what they tell us to follow here. They want us to look at verses 1 through 4 to start off with, right? That's what they want us to look at, all right? So I'm going to play along, and we're going to read Jeremiah 18, 1 through 4. Here we go. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. There I will cause thee to hear my words. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I think they they, they mentioned this as well. Well, well, I'll just read what they have to say in a minute, okay? Because I'm already going to start going off where I want to go. But all right, verse 3. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, they wrought a work on the wills. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. Oh, there's some serious philosophical problems with this. Okay, all right. Let's see how they handle this. You ready? God used a variety of object lessons to convey his message through Jeremiah. We can all agree with that, right? Chapter 13 is the, very, is the object lesson chapter, right? We call it. In chapter 13, it was a linen girdle. In chapter 19, the prophet will be directed to buy a potter's earthen bottle and shatter it in front of the audience to symbolize how God was about to shatter Judah for its rebellion against him. In chapter 27, the object lesson involved Jeremiah putting a yoke around his neck and then proclaiming to the people that they should submit to the Babylonians. Oh, I bet you that. Let me tell you, when you have an unlawful government giving you rules you don't like and then you're a pastor telling people to submit to them, you won't be well received. And do you think Jeremiah is going to be well received telling the people to submit to the Babylonians? And But we, we learned in, in, in the American church that you're not supposed to tell people to submit. But, well, right here, Jeremiah tells them to submit. And you say, well, our government is worse than the Babylonians. Yeah, okay, yeah, go ahead, yeah, you, you can think that, all right? Doesn't mean you have to agree with an idea. It just means you have to figure out who the authority is and if you're supposed to submit to the authority or not. But, you know, as Christians, we don't submit to authority, right? Because we think we are the authority, All right, here we go. That's a whole lesson right there when we get to that chapter. Here in chapter 18, Jeremiah received from God another object lesson. Now, we know he receives it from God because right there in Jeremiah 18, which verse makes us clear that he received this from God? The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down, and he tells him everything to do. All right? 
And we see this over and over and over and over and over in the book. And why is it repeated over and over in the book? Because God wants the people to know that this message from Jeremiah is really a message from God. And that, that's really... Yeah, see, I'm, kind of, I'm going to leave the study guide for a minute. It, in fact, if we looked at that phrase, it's used over and over and over. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. They, they make a list of all of them. But you can go through all of that. But it, on some ways, we sit there, and this is how we do it. We look at it, and we're like, well, why didn't the people listen to Jeremiah? Clearly, it was the word of God. Why didn't they listen? But don't give me that nonsense. You wouldn't have listened to him any more than you'll listen to anyone today. Because he would have said things that you didn't like, and so you would have went and found another church. They're like, we don't want him. So they found, what did they, they did find another church. They were called the false prophets. Right? And they listened to the false prophets. Now this raises serious question here, Right? Because when a pastor stands and preaches, this, this gets into some really controversial stuff, right? And this is why Roman Catholicism still exists and why Roman Catholicism is never going to go away. Because, Roman Catholic, because a lot of people get sick of this reality that I'm about to explain and why they give up and go back to Roman Catholicism. But in the Protestant world, you can go to school. You can have degrees. You can read, you can study, you can stand in the pulpit, open up the Bible and say, thus saith the Lord, and teach it, and will the people receive it? If they like it. Do my words have any authority? They do not. Zero. Uh, unintentionally, but he ultimately made it a reality. Now, what Luther thought he was going to do was put the authority in in, in Scripture. And I do love the fact that's what he wanted to do. And it sounds so good, right? But let's just be honest. Everyone who preaches, they preach, they they think they're preaching the Word of God. And does it matter that when I stand and preach a doctrine, does it matter to anyone that I'm saying, I studied this, I studied this, this is what the scriptures say? No, because someone will go, no, you're wrong. Why? Because I read a verse, or I didn't study it, but but I know it. Everyone thinks that they have the word of God, and that their way of understanding it is right. And it doesn't matter if it's a pastor. doesn't matter if it's a seminary professor. doesn't matter. It can be a lay person to a seminary professor, and none of them have any more authority. And people will email me, no, I will listen to my pastor until you don't. You will listen until you don't. You will agree until you don't. So when you look at them and go, well, why wouldn't they listen to Jeremiah? Why don't you? Because you, you get to decide what the truth is. And it's just, the, nobody likes this, but it's the reality. Everyone says the scriptures are the authority. The scriptures are no more the authority. You're making it up. Who's the authority? We are the authority. This is why some people within the Protestant world is like, you know what? Forget this nonsense. Because you all think you're God. You all think you're the authority. You all think you're the Pope. I'm just going to go back where there's one Pope. Because it's better to have one Pope than a million. It's better to argue with one magisterial authority than everyone being the magisterial authority. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating as a pastor it's got to be, it should be frustrating for you as a lay person because everyone's like, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. Go talk to any Christian. How long does it last before there's a disagreement? Five seconds? And it doesn't even matter. It, and they will be, they speak so dogmatically, we are right and you are wrong. And you're like, okay, well, whatever. I mean, you almost reach the point, you're just like, it's not even, it's not, it's not, I don't even care. I mean, I've, I've told you before, I've reached the point, I don't even care anymore. You say, I disagree. Yeah, so what? Yeah, 
I don't believe what you believe. So what? I don't even care anymore. I don't even care. I'm literally, I, I, that's, that's, I, I, I'm so just broken and jaded over this situation. It doesn't even matter. Well, you should get people to agree to a doctrinal statement. Why? It doesn't matter. None of it matters. I can say, thus saith the Lord. I can literally read it. I can expound it. I can explain it. And if you don't agree with it, it doesn't matter how well I teach it. And then sometimes you'll get people go, well, this whole authority thing bothers me. I'm like, so, so what do we do? And so sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll throw out, the, well, how about you start with submitting to me? Oh, you don't want to do that either, do you? So, yeah. So then why are you even asking, what are we going to do about the authority? Because you don't, won't even submit to the authority right in front of you. So then what doesn't even matter? You will submit until you don't. You will agree until you don't. And that's one of the reasons in this church I don't have that view that you can't leave, that you can't leave a church until they start teaching false doctrine. That's what, I used, that's what I was taught. That sounds good in theory, but what does it ultimately mean? You can never leave because am I ever going to think I'm teaching false doctrine? My thing now is just, look, I just don't care. You just go, whatever. I mean, nothing I can do about it. Nothing I can do about it. And literally nothing I can do about it. But it, so I just want you to see, when you see these people not listening to Jeremiah, don't get so judgmental. You say, well, he was giving them the word of God. And they would have said, no, he's not. They would have said the false prophets are giving the word of God. So how do you know who's giving you the word of God? How do you know? I don't know what to tell you because, because I can say, well, if I'm preaching and expounding it and teaching it, and you'll be like, amen, as long as you're consistent with the scriptures, you're teaching it until you say that I'm not. <laughs> then all of a sudden, I'm not giving you the word of God. You have the word of God. And it's, it's, it's just the whole thing is just maddening and you can see why in and a lot of people don't understand the appeal of roman catholicism that's the appeal to roman catholicism is i just walk in and just say i'm done i'm just done i'm done and if you're a priest preaching and you don't agree with me take it up with the pope take it up with because as a pre, as a catholic priest you look at the people and go who are you you don't have the authority Yes, I do. No, you don't. You're a part of a church that literally says, you don't. Okay. Who has the authority to interpret it? The church, not you. And Protestants are like, that is horrifying. And our system is any better? I don't even know why we have pastors. I mean, sometimes as a pastor, I think you should just stand at the door and go, what would you like me to preach today? Okay, you come on in, I'll preach for you. Next, next, and just have one, a service, just have a, a string of services for each individual so that I can give them the message that they want. And say, no, I don't want, and people always will t- do this to me. After they complain, they'll say, well, I'm not telling you what to preach. But if you keep preaching that, I'm leaving. <laughs> well, then you're telling me what to Preach. It's just like, it's the whole thing is just ridiculous. So when you see this, that God's word is coming, because we're getting ready to get into a section, guess what's getting ready to happen to Jeremiah? He's getting ready to be persecuted. You're like, well, why would the people persecute him? Because they don't agree with him. And guess what they would have thought? That they were right. That... That should bother us a little bit, shouldn't it? Because if you think you're right and I think I'm right, then who's right? When you come to that impasse, right? You're you're sitting in the pew and you're like, he's wrong. Uh, Okay, shouldn't that bother us a little bit? Well, we got the same book. How come we can't agree? Well, we know that it doesn't, obviously education doesn't matter. I mean, come on, in the Protestant world, does education matter? Give me a break. Doesn't mean a thing, man. You can have five thousand degrees. Say that—that—that that, that was my foolishness. 
When I was young, I'm like, I'm going to get this degree and this degree and this degree and this degree. And I'm going to know everything so that at least I, I should have the benefit of the doubt. And people should at least like, whoa, well, you know, he has done a lot of stuff. It's ir- I should have not wasted one second going to school. I should not have. All those hours was an absolute useless waste of time from a pragmatic. I benefited personally. But for ministry, I thought it was going to put me in a good position, right? Doesn't mean anything. And even hearing God give you the words directly doesn't do anything for you, right? Do you think charismatic, do charismatic churches split? Now, how could they split if the pastor's supposedly hearing from Baptist churches split. How many times does Baptist pastors say, God gave me this message? I could literally say, God gave me this message, and you would still go, disagree. It doesn't even matter. The whole thing's ridiculous, right? The whole thing. And we condemn Catholicism? Sometimes it's like, man, that... that even though I may disagree with so much about it, at least it just ends the debate, right? You can see the appeal to it. I know when I say that people lose their minds, but there you go. But all right, so just, I want to focus on that, that part. All right, let's, let's see. We didn't get very far, but let's continue, all right? So, uh, so the, word, he, the word comes to him. He's going to go down to the potters, uh, to the, uh, what is the exact words? To the potter's house, all right? And this is what they say, verses 2 through 4, which we've read. God told Jeremiah to arise from the high ground on which the temple stood, the place where the prophet had just delivered a message to the people, to the potter's house where God would reveal his message to Jeremiah. Given the findings of archaeologists of ancient Israel, it's safe to conclude that pottery was an abundance in antiquity. Potters produced pots, bowls, pitchers, cups, and various types of jars, all of them essential in everyday life. Everyone in Israel would have been familiar with potters, the wares they crafted and how they went about producing them. Therefore, everyone would hear the message God was about to give Jeremiah. Uh, 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 everyone would hear the message God was about to give Jeremiah would be able to understand it. When Jeremiah arrived, he saw the potter working on the wills. Right? Does everybody see that in the text? What verse is that? Verse 3. Everybody see it? Okay, they have literally at the two stones is what they say literally it should be. How does the NIV translate it? Verse three. At the will, they say the will. All right, they say literally it's at the two stones, but you get the idea. He's at the will. Potters in ancient Israel used an apparatus that consisted of two stone wills. These wills were joined together by a vertical axle. All right. Potters spun the large wheel near the floor with their feet, which in turn caused the spinning of the smaller upper wheel above on which the potter formed the clay. Right. So far, so good. Right. As the potter was working with the clay, it became marred. Now, we've got to stop right here. Does anyone start feeling a little uncomfortable here and start having maybe some philosophical problems and dilemma here? What problem? Well, it could. Well, just what, what would be a question any good Bible student should ask at this time? What's a good question any good Bible student should ask at this time? Oh, very good. Who marred it? Who marred it? This, this, this gets uncomfortable, I know, right? So if we go with this analogy, typically we say the potter is whom? God. The clay is, well, in this context, Israel or Judah. All right. So if, if the clay is them, the potter, how did it become marred? Now, is the text here to put blame? Well, you have to assign blame somehow, right? Right? So, did Judah mar themselves, or did the potter mar them, 
or was something defective with the clay from the very start? Well, if you say something was defective from the clay from the very start, well, who created the clay? And who knew the clay was going to become defective? Right? But the text says, so, but I don't know how far we push the picture. Remember, sometimes when it's a parable like this or, or kind of an allegory, it's giving us an overall lesson. So I don't want to push it too far, but you can see why some people may start asking some questions. Well, well wait a minute. If the potter marred it, it's on him. Right? But then that goes back to Romans 9. Well, if he creates a vessel for destruction then he can do that, which then leads to all kinds of questions. But, all right, let's see, let's see what they have to say here. As the potter was working with the clay, it became marred. Because of this flaw, the clay was no longer fit for whatever the potter originally had planned to do with it. Consequently, he decided to make it into something altogether different from what he had first planned. He squeezed it in a shapeless clump and started over. He did not discard the flaw clay. Now they say, okay, he did not discard it. It just becomes marred, and now he's going to rework it. Okay. Okay. I think possibly this 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 would have major implications when it comes to eschatology, right? Because some would say, well, the the clay is Israel, and it was marred, and he did what? He discarded it and replaced it with a new bit of clay, which is the church. Now, if this is correct, he didn't throw it away. He just started reworking it. Now, we'll we'll read the text again just to make sure. All right. He, He patiently reworked it into something else that would be useful. The potter was in complete control of the clay, and he alone was able to decide what he wanted to do with the clay. Right. Now, let's read it and see how it actually reads. Okay, we're, let's, let's go carefully here. We go to verse 3. Everybody there? You got the NIV? Yep. Any other translations present? Okay. Let, let's just see carefully what happens. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wills. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. That does not seem to imply that he got rid of the clay, that he just turned it into a different vessel. Right? Sounds good? Are are we okay with that? Right? Now, they ask this question here. They ask this question here. How is clay in a potter's hand like God's people being in God's hands. How does the image of God as a potter give you hope? Now, of course, they've always got to make it somehow hopeful. I don't know how hopeful it is, especially when you go to Romans 9 and realize that in his same hands, he's going to create some vessels for honor and some for dishonor. Then it becomes not such a comforting thing. It becomes very, 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 very disturbing. But in this case, the only good thing that we may see here, right? And I think it may be fair. Does everyone feel that it's fair to say he did not get rid of the clay? Does everybody feel comfortable with that? Now, that's a good sign because that means they, they, there's something wrong. He's going to rework it. And then ultimately, something good will come from it. And we believe that ultimately, even though a lot of people have to die, ultimately, God will do what with Israel? Restore, save, and all of that. All right? Okay, here we go. Let's look at verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, once again, he's just trying to demonstrate that this message is whose? This is God's message, all right? O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now stop right here. What good question should a good Bible student ask it above verse 6? What questions should you start struggling with in verse 6? Well, if they're in his hand, then why is there a problem to start with? Right? Shouldn't that the question you should ask? Right? 
I mean, if, if, if Sarah get, gets all the kids together and like, I am in charge of this entire situation. You're all in my hands. And then everything goes wrong. There should be at least one child in that group who should say, and it's all your fault that this is messed up. Right? Which kid would it be? There you go. You got to have one. For us, it would be Kate. Well, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. Kate always does that. I didn't ask to be born. It's your fault. Kate always says that. If there's anything wrong with her, it's not my fault. I didn't ask to be born. You're the one who brought me into the world. You brought this into the world. So you got to deal with my behavior. And it's your fault that I have this behavior because I didn't, I didn't create myself. And you're like, well, okay, it's hard to argue against that. Right? It's hard to argue against that. I mean, it's a good philosophical argument. Right? You didn't ask to be born. You're right. You didn't have a choice in the matter. You're right. And we, we should have gotten rid of you, obviously, early on. Okay? That's the only solution. I can guess the only answer I got. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. All right. But you get the point. Like, if God's the one in charge of this, hey, Israel, I mean, what does he say? Cannot I do with you as the potter? Meaning, can I not do anything I want? And the answer is, you can Behold, it's the clay is in the potter's hand. So are you in my hand, O house of Israel? And I would be like, great, you're right. We are in your hand, God. We trust that. Now, could you explain why people are dying? Could you explain why we're not obeying? Could you explain why we're not listening? Because if we're in your hands, you can fix it. Look, I know we're not supposed to talk about this in church. I know this is, we're not supposed to do this. I know. I know we're not supposed to do this. But we have to do this, right? Because even though the church people, church people have this weird thing like just, you know, amen to everything and everything's good. But there's, there's some people who go to church who like, this disturbs them and it makes no sense. And they're not allowed to talk about it in church. And I've always said, I, I hate that about church, right? We should be able to struggle with these things. So let's see if we get any answers. What happens in verse 7? At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? How does the NIV translate verse 7? If at any time I decide if a nation needs to be pulled down or lifted up, if one needs to be exalted or if one needs to be destroyed, seemingly to imply that who's the potter here? God. What does the next verse say? If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Now, once again, we're back to this never-ending drama that we see in verse 8, which constantly raises the questions. Well, wait a minute. So now, God's in charge. I'm in charge. If you repent, then I won't destroy you. Well, that puts the emphasis back on them. But wait a minute. If you're in charge... If you're in charge, then fix me so that I don't even need to repent or give me the repentance. So once again, we're back to, we're back to this never-ending theological question. Can people repent on their own? Or can they only repent if God grants them repentance? If we say people can repent on their own, then the entire situation is what we do. It's a work that we do, right? It's a work that we do. And then that would require us not to have a sinful nature because a sinful nature would never allow us to truly repent, right? And even if we did repent, even if we did repent, now just think about this. Let's say that your sinful nature, just think about this. Even let's say your sinful nature allows you to repent, right? Here, I'm going to just offer a test today. You want a social experiment? Y'all can try it this week. First, I'm going to give you law. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. And be ye holy as God is holy. Has anybody failed those three this week? Repent. Even if God granted you repentance and you're like, I repent, I'm going to stop. I'm going to love God. I'm going to love my neighbor and I'm going to be holy as God is holy. And you feel bad. You change your mind. Even let's say you make five changes today. Next Sunday, what do you think the results are going to be on how you did? So even if you could repent, the repentance would only be temporary. Did not Israel at times go through periods of so-called repentance? And what happens every single time? They go right back. So telling them to repent, it is about as useless as me talking to this wall. They can't. And even if they could, it wouldn't last. Once again, you've got the law solution, the law solution, the law solution. All right, so what happens next? Well, hang on, let's stop right here. Uh, they, I'm skipping everything that they're saying here. That's okay. I'm just going to skip everything they're saying. We're down to what verse? We, I think we read eight. We read eight, we read nine, right? We read 10, right? It, it, uh, I'll read, read 10. If, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, and I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. All right, so in other words, he puts the responsibility back on them, right? He puts the responsibility back on them. Hey, you do the right thing, but they're not going to do the right thing. You know they're not going to do the right thing. I know they're not going to do the right thing. We know they're going into Babylonian captivity. When they come out of Babylonian captivity, are they going to be doing the right thing very long? No, because when we open our New Testament, they're back under the control of Rome. And how does Israel treat their Messiah? Oh, they kill him. And then what happens? They're wiped off the face of the earth in 70 AD. So guess what? Did they ever obey? No. All right, just make sure we understand that. Verse 11. Now therefore go speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now every one from his evil way and make your way and your doings good. Once again, there was, it's law, law, law. Law, law. And I just want to make sure you understand, every law solution ends with what? Failure. Very good. Every law solution ends with failure. Their only hope is something other than law, right? And that is gospel, and that's what Christ did for us. And for them, it will be the new covenant. Verse 12. And they said, there is no hope. But we will walk after our own device and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. That's what I wish every congregation would do anytime the pastor preaches law. Every congregation, whenever I preach law to you, I want you to say what words? There is no hope. Come on, everybody read it with me. Whenever you hear the law, your response should be, there is no hope. We will walk after our own devices. Everyone do the imagination of his heart. I know you don't want to say that, but that's the reality. Typically when the law is preached in churches, what does everyone say? Amen! We're going to do it. Thank you, pastor. That was so convicting. And then by the time you get home, you've already yelled and screamed at your kids, fight with your spouse, upset about this, already determined you're not coming back to church, whatever the case may be, right? That is literally the only response to the law is there's no hope. Because what are you going to continue to do? It's right there. It's an open book, everyone. You're going to continue to, everybody look at verse 12 again. I'm trying to get, make it open book. I'm trying to get you to know the verse. You're going to walk after your own devices and you're going to do what? The imagination of your evil heart. That is the, that is the reality of life under the law. All right? So the next time 
you hear a sermon that's law, that's what you should say. There is no hope, Pastor. I'm going to leave here and I'm going to do what? Okay. Yeah. Quote, quote verse 12. I'm trying to get the verse in your head is what I'm trying to do. Okay. You are going to walk your own devices to the imagination of your evil heart. All right? I, wanna, I cannot stress, I want you to have that verse written down. Put it on the refrigerator. Put it anywhere. Anytime you hear the law, there is no hope. I'm going to continue to follow my devices and I'm going to go after the evil that is in my heart. That is what I'm going to do, Pastor. Period. That is what I'm going to do. And so then you should say, if there is no hope, what can I do? And uh, you can't do anything. I got to find someone who will do it for me. And that is Christ. Oh, I can't, I can I know how many people will disagree with this message, but that's okay. That's okay. What happens in the next verse? I don't even know the time. I'm not even paying any attention. Okay. Okay. We're good. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Ask ye now among the heathen who hath heard such things. The virgin of Israel hath done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow of Lebanon, which cometh from the rock of the field? Or shall the cloud flowing, uh, flowing waters that come from another place be forsaken? He's asking some rhetorical questions. And the answer is supposed like, no, nobody's going to do these things, right? You're going to stay with these things that are wonderful and great, right? They keep doing what? They keep leaving God. They keep forsaking God. They keep forsaking the living waters. They keep doing these things, right? What happens in the next verse? Because my people hath forgotten me. They have burned incense to vanity. They have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in paths in a way not cast up to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and wag his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will shoo them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Basically, I'm going to turn my back on you and you're going to be destroyed. But yeah, I know you should be asking, but wait a minute, aren't you the potter? Then said they, now if you think about it, think of Israel's history, they're the clay that's marred. They get judged and suffer. But at some point, God's going to form from them ultimately salvation. The question is, why the suffering in the first place? All we can say is, Some were fit for destruction and some for honor. Just bad to be brought up in the time when you're fit for destruction, is it not? What verse did we just stop in? Uh, Verse uh, 17, 18. Then said they, come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us smite him with the tongue and let us not give heed to any of his words. All right, now this is where we'll stop. Okay, I don't have a lot of time. Obviously, we we can all agree there's some serious philosophical difficulties in this chapter. And if you'll go back and listen to the last message I just did and you listen to this message and you go spend a considerable amount of your day in Romans chapter 9, you're going to be left perplexed, confused, disturbed, bothered, and psychologically scarred. And there's no way for me to get around that. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. There's just no way. And anyone, any pastor who pretends that it does is lying to you. There's no easy answer for it, right? Why would God create some for destruction and some for honor. Well, the destruction, his wrath gets glory, and his and when uh, salvation, his mercy gets glory. And that sounds wonderful sitting in church until you put it in an actual context with real people, and then it's not so pretty anymore, right? Okay, I don't understand all of that, but I want to circle back to what I talked about at the beginning of this sermon, because now we have it right here in living color. Did Jeremiah just preach the word of God? 
And what was the response to the word of God being preached? They're not going to listen. They're not going to follow and they're going to persecute. And we sit here going, I don't understand. But I just want to make it very clear. This is the reality of Christianity. Because Christianity, you always have people preaching and you always have people who will not listen to the preaching. They're going to believe what they want. They're going to do what they want. And they will listen to a preacher until they disagree. They would have listened to Jeremiah if he preached any other message. But he preached a message they didn't like. Because that message is that judgment is coming. And they didn't want to hear it. They disagreed with it. Now, we, preachers will preach this and say, see, this is why it's so important for you to study the Bible so that you can test the preaching that you hear with the word of God. Preachers say that and think it's all wonderful until the people then say, well, I tested your message with the word of God and now I don't agree with you. But just make sure how this always works. Every message you test with the word of God and say it's not from the word of God, the person who preached it would say that they're preaching the word of God. So everyone is saying that the word of God is saying something different than what each other is saying that it says. Which is literally maddening. It's, it's just, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know what to say anymore about that, but it's just the case, right? There's people listening to us right now on the internet, I guarantee you, has already disagreed with our approach to Romans 9, has disagreed maybe with some of the things I've said in Jeremiah 18. They clearly disagree with me that Roman Catholicism is possibly a trap. They disagree, 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 disagree. And it doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter how much study, doesn't matter if I give you all the schools I went to, it's not going to matter. They're going to believe what they want to believe and believe that they're right, and I'm going to preach what I preach thinking I'm right and everyone's just going to believe what they want because everyone is their own authority their own pope their own magisterium because everyone thinks that they're God and there's no way to water that down or say any different and I and I know you may say well I don't I need an answer I don't have an answer I don't have an answer I wish it wasn't the case in my younger Christian life I thought there was an answer Right? I thought teach people Bible study methods. Teach people hermeneutics. And if everyone will use Bible study methods and use hermeneutics and and tell people, don't argue with me until you've done the study. Do those things. I thought that I could resolve all problems. Did it resolve anything? No. In fact, many people would leave without ever actually doing the study that I asked them to. I could provide, hey, here's this, here's this, here's this. Would they read it? No. Would they study it? No. Because they don't have to read. They don't have to study. All they have to do is say, you're wrong. They are the authority. And that is a depressing reality of Christianity. But it was no different than it is right here. In fact, who do they mention in that verse where they're going to go after Jeremiah? They refer to wise men, right? Who who else do they refer to? Priests and prophets. Everyone will always be able to find a religious leader or a teacher who will say what you agree with. That's why everyone picks the church that they pick. Go find someone going to New Hope this morning. Why do they go to New Hope? Because their pastor preaches the word of God. That's why they go there. They won't come here because they would say, I don't preach the word of God. People who go to Beltway go to Beltway because other people go to, uh, just start naming churches in Abilene. They don't come here because I'm wrong and their church is right. And even if they say, well, no, 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 no. I believe all of us are preaching God's word. No, you don't. Because then we would all be one church. We're not one church because we don't agree. But why do they, and guess how long they will go there? How long will they go to New Hope? Until the pastor preaches something 
They don't like. How long will they go to Beltway? How long will they go to Southside? It's, it's all just, I hate to, I, I know this sounds jaded. To me, it's just, it's, just it's, like, it's like little kids playing house. It's just all pretend. And I wish we could fix it. I really wish there was a solution. But if even Jeremiah, being given direct revelation from God, and the people wouldn't listen to him, what is my hope? Especially in the Protestant world where we're told to do what? You're literally told that it's your job to judge me. Right? That's literally. And it's amazing that in the Protestant world we tell everyone it's your job to judge me. Well, if it's your job to judge me, then why in the world did I waste any time going to school? Because that seems to imply... That without education, you you possess the same ability as I possess to understand the word of God. That my understanding doesn't trump your understanding. So that means education is useless. That's why the entire seminary thing is a waste of time. But then churches will be when you come to where they're going to call a pastor. Well, where did you go to school? You know what I want to say? It doesn't matter because you don't care where I went to school. You care now until I say something you don't like and then my schooling won't matter. I mean, look, this is, everyone understand what I'm talking about. It's relevant to the text. Okay, everybody understand that. I'm not just like, oh, he just has something he wants to. No, I'm saying this because it's relevant to the text. When, because we all look at this and we judge those people for not listening to Jeremiah, right? We're like, how dare they not listen to the man of God? How dare they not listen to the prophet of God? How dare they? They're no different than you or me. Jeremiah would have given this message and we would have been like, leaving this church. And they went to the other church yeah yeah how do I know that's from God how do I know how do I know and that's a good question right if I preach it but what we do know even the claim of divine revelation pastors can say God gave me the message the people in the pew don't care so I if Jeremiah couldn't find the solution I'm not going to find the solution The Catholic solution is what? You don't have the right and the authority, so I'm just going to be blunt. Shut up. Listen to the magisterium. Apostolic succession. We have the power. We have the authority. You don't. We don't like that, especially in America. How dare you tell me what to do? Right? So then we're like, we're going to... And I know Luther didn't like that, right? Because Luther told him that they were... Wrong. And then what happened to Luther? Then people told him, you're wrong. And then Calvin, and then people told him, and then Zwingli, and then the Anabaptist. Okay. And then you just keep the Pentecostals, you're wrong. Church of Christ, you're wrong. You just keep going. and everyone, You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You're the, all the different Baptist groups. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Reformed Baptists, non-reformed Baptists. It's just... Ugh. And I just want to lay down. I'm just like, I give up. I used to be like, I'm going to fight it! Now I'm just like, I give up. I just, I, I, I just don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah, well, obviously it's not going to ever be fixed. So the only hope is, and I, all I can ever say is, all we, all we can do is the only thing I do know, and I am convinced of this. I'm not convinced of anything else, but I'm still convinced that this is the word of God. For those listening online, I'm holding up a Bible. I'm still convinced this is the word of God. And I still believe this is the truth. And all I can do is try to get people to actually care enough to study it. And care enough to study it in a way where we don't just care about simple little answers and three points in a sermon, 
but we actually dig in and ask the hard questions and struggle and, diff- and pl- put forth our theological hypotheses, test it. We did that this morning in Romans 9. We kind of threw out a hypothesis and it kind of fell apart, did it not? As we got later into the chapter, I love doing that stuff, right? And that every time we study, we should take our presuppositions and everything that we've learned in the past, and what should we do when we study the text again? We just forget the past. How valuable is past study in the present? It's of no value. Forget what you've learned in the past, study the text anew. And all I can beg people to do is be willing to actually do that. But some people don't like that. They don't like all that. They just want a sermon. They want a sermon. They don't want to, they don't want the, te- they want a ser- I'm so sick of that. I want a sermon. I want church. I want, I want it to, oh my goodness. Do we come here to learn or what are we doing? They want community and feelings and I, I don't know. Oh, just the whole thing. And it's like, what is all of that? Just, I don't, I can go to Starbucks and meet a couple of people if I want feelings and we can touch and hold hands or something. But I thought we came here to do what? To be equipped. And that means literally digging in. And when you dig in, guess what you find? Man, I don't know about that. And I don't know about that. What are we going to do here? And if we're willing to do that, I'm not saying we're going to find all the answers, but you would hope in theory that if you have that attitude and I have that attitude, that even if we don't completely agree, we'll keep working so that we will get closer and closer to the truth. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Forgive us for all of the rejection of it and the confusion it has caused. Help us be better students. Help us be more humble. And help us never forget the mess that we have created and thinking that we know everything and that we are the ones who determine truth. Forgive us for that and help us navigate a world that is so confusing when it comes to who's preaching the truth and who's not preaching the truth. Forgive us and thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. And God's people said,